Jerry Clayton is a cop. He's actually the elected sheriff of Washtenaw County in Michigan. And since the summer of 2020, he has spent a lot of time thinking about how cops interact with other cops. Let's just go back to the George Floyd situation. And the images of not Derek Chauvin with his knee on George Floyd's neck, but the other officers that were standing around and in everybody's mind, include my own, if only they had to intervene. Get off of his neck! And, you know, then I said, I think Minneapolis has in their policy to intervene. So how, if you have it in your policy in a situation like that, even with the public saying do something, did those officers not intervene? Right. Child, check his pulse. Get back in the check. Side. The man ain't moved yet, bro. Sheriff Clayton is one of hundreds of law enforcement officers who've now taken part in bystander intervention training. Cottrell Davis, a warden outside of New Orleans, he also signed up for this training. He wanted to do it essentially because of what he saw from those officers in that video. Initially, it angered me because um, in some of the individuals, you can see possibly they know like something is going wrong and, and is. Something is happening that's not protocol and not correct. Davis said, of course, he's angry when he sees those officers not stopping Chauvin. But there's also a tiny part of him that almost feels sorry for them. At, at one point, I felt some kind of sympathy for them because they didn't do the act. But then the realization kicks in, like, you could have impacted, you could have made some changes um, if you would just intervened. Why didn't these officers at the scene of George Floyd's death intervene? That's the question at the center of a criminal trial playing out right now in Minnesota, where they are facing federal charges. Prosecutors and defense attorneys are talking about police protocol. They're looking at how exactly these officers were trained. But the question of intervention is also a question of social science and behavioral psychology. It's one reason why intervention training is starting to catch on with police. And for many of these officers, this training has forced them to ask themselves, what would I have done if I'd been at that scene? From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, February 3rd. Today, we're talking about the trial in Minnesota and the complicated legal issues around who was responsible for George Floyd's death. Just a warning, you're going to hear a little tape from the video footage of that scene. Then, later in the show, we're going to talk about this new program that is training cops on how to stand up to fellow cops and why some people believe that this could be the solution to police wrongdoing. We, the jury, in the above-entitled matter as to count one, unintentional second-degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. Nine months ago, we had a state trial for Derek Chauvin and the death of George Floyd. That's Holly Bailey, a reporter for The Post based in Minneapolis. Count two, third-degree murder, perpetrating an eminently dangerous act, find the defendant guilty. Creating an unreasonable risk. Find the defendant guilty. This verdict. Holly covered that trial last year, where Chauvin was found guilty of three charges of murder and manslaughter. 
basically the case is now continuing with a federal trial against the other three officers who were at the scene who are charged with violating George Floyd's civil rights. Um, it's the first of two trials that are planned for those officers this year. They're also charged in state court with aiding and abetting murder and manslaughter in Floyd's death. Why are there two different trials here, a federal trial as well as a state trial? There are two separate investigations. One easy way to think about it is that the state case, they're charged with what they did do at the scene. The federal case is about what they didn't do. The officers are charged with failing to render medical aid to George Floyd. And two of the officers are charged with not intervening as, as Derek Chauvin knelt on George Floyd's neck. Can you tell me briefly who are these three officers who are on trial? A lot of this case is, has really focused on Derek Chauvin, who is the white police officer that you can see in all the viral videos of Floyd's death. But there were three other officers at the scene. Um, next to Derek Chauvin was Jay Alexander King, who is a black officer. And next to him, holding uh, George Floyd's legs, was Thomas K. Lane. King and Lane graduated from the academy in December 2019. And in the following months after that, they became probationary officers, which basically means they go through field training. King and Lane were rookies, and they had only been on the force for just a few days. And then in the videos, you also can see Tu Tao, who was Chauvin's partner that day. He had been on the force uh, much longer, about eight years. Um, and all of them were based in the 3rd Precinct, uh, which covered the area of South Minneapolis where George Floyd was killed. So what is the case that prosecutors are making against these three officers? Well, essentially, they're charged with not intervening. Um, a prosecutor in opening statements on January 24th said, they didn't do anything as Derek Chauvin crushed the life out of George Floyd. So they're charged with not getting Chauvin to stop using force when it wasn't necessary. But then they're also charged with not rendering medical aid. And I should clarify, uh, Thomas K. Lane is only charged with failing to render medical aid because in the video, um, the body camera video, you can hear Thomas Lane twice asked Derek Chauvin if they should roll George Floyd over onto mm. his side. You roll him on his side? Okay. I just worry about the fetid delirium or whatever. And he was rebuffed by Chauvin. And at one point, King, who said, let's just leave him. Let's just leave him in this place. Mm. And so... Essentially, so far, what prosecutors are trying to build is a case about that they had training about what to do when a, when a suspect or someone in their custody became unconscious. They had training about when to use force and when to stop it. And most importantly, in the issue that's really going to be pivotal in this case, there was an intervention policy, a duty to intervene policy that they had been trained on. I should stop and say, you know, this trial is so different than what Derek Chauvin's was. One, it's not televised. There's a ban on cameras in the courtroom. But also this judge is really limited the amount of video that can be played because defense attorneys are really pushing on cumulative evidence, which means they don't want to overwhelm the jury and they think it's unfair to their clients if the videos are played again and again. But when it is played, the jury, you know, as we've seen in, so far, they lean forward and look into their monitors and they're taking vociferous notes. Um, 
And so far, they've really pointed out a bunch of key moments, one of them being Alexander King, who was positioned next to Derek Chauvin, holding down George Floyd's back, uh, basically saying, I can't find a pulse. And in the video, you hear Derek Chauvin say, huh? And King repeats it, but Derek Chauvin doesn't move his knee. And what is the defense arguing in response to that? One of the key arguments for the defense is, one, they're, they're all pointing the finger at Derek Chauvin as the one responsible for George Floyd's death. He was the senior officer at the scene, a 19-year veteran who had happened to be the field training officer uh, for King and had loosely advised Lane during their, their training, which had occurred in those months before George Floyd's death in 2020. The attorneys for them have argued that they were deferring to Chauvin, who at least in one part had been kind of their superior. But also, we've seen that that King's attorney is really going to try to put the culture of the police department and the training on trial. They acknowledge there was a duty to intervene policy that these officers are trained in. But they've really emphasized so far that those words were just really nothing more than a PowerPoint, is how King's attorney put it. Um, there was no scenario training, he has argued, and, and says he's going to present that in his case. And in fact, late last week on the stand, we had Katie Blackwell, who is an inspector for the Minneapolis Police Department, who was going through the litany of training that these officers had gone through. And prosecutors really zeroed in on language from PowerPoints and lesson plans that showed warnings to officers. You must intervene if you see another colleague using excessive force or if someone mm-hmm. needs medical aid. But Thomas Plunkett, who is Alexander King's attorney, he really has hammered into the fact that there was no scenarios where people actually practiced doing that. And at one point, he basically got Katie Blackwell to admit that it was really kind of words that they were telling people and that she really said, emphasized that they had trained people on, you know, leadership skills and how to feel confident enough to intervene with more senior officers or other colleagues at the scene. Um, And he really tried to argue this is a militarized environment that police officers in where they're taught to say sir and ma'am. And he pointed to language in the cadet manual of you don't disagree with officers, essentially, is what it said. But it's really just him trying to indict the police department of, you know, it's one thing that you can say that officers are are trained to intervene and they're told to stop other officers from committing force, but at the same time, they're told this sort of contradictory message of it's us versus them. Um, The rest of the world Mm -hmm. is basically how you put it. What are some of the other big questions that you expect will be explored during the rest of this trial? Well, one big issue is whether Derek Chauvin is going to testify in this trial. Um, He was convicted last year of murder and manslaughter and is currently serving a 22 and a half year sentence on those charges. In December, just weeks before the federal trial began, he pled guilty in this case, and he's yet to be sentenced. One of the really interesting things about that plea agreement is that 
it's almost as if prosecutors sort of tried to box him in on what he could say. Um, there was a lot of admissions in his plea agreement. One, he acknowledged that he heard King tell him that George Floyd didn't have a pulse. He heard Thomas Lane ask him if they should roll the man over. But And this is the key sentence. He said, I didn't see them do anything to take action on those statements. And that's Mm. really going to be pivotal. This federal case is so interesting and in some ways a little bit more interesting than the Chauvin trial in that it feels like we're really going to pull back the curtain in some ways on how police officers are trained in the streets. Holly Bailey is a national correspondent for The Post based in Minneapolis. After the break, we dive into what this kind of police training could look like. We'll be right back. Well, think of it this way. Uh, You've watched the George Floyd video. And, and obviously you're repulsed by, by what that one officer does. And at the same time, you can't stop looking at those three other officers and you can't stop asking yourself, how is it that they can just stand there? How, how come they're not acting? That's Jonathan Arany. He's an attorney at the law firm Shepard Mullen. And Jonathan has become something of a specialist in understanding why police officers don't step in when their coworkers do something wrong. Well, it turns out you actually see that quite often, and not just in policing. You see it quite often in most professions. Aaron and his law firm helped found a program at Georgetown Law focused on bystander intervention. It's this idea that one way to reform policing is by helping cops call out bad behavior from fellow cops. Anything from using excessive force to forgetting a step in an arrest or even skipping over a report that they were supposed to write. And Arany believes that bystander intervention training could be the key to preventing what happened to George Floyd from happening in the future. For decades and decades, we've been teaching police officers about intervention, but we've been doing it really badly. Like, all we do is we give them a PowerPoint and we say, thou shall intervene, as though it's easy. And we've never, ever taught the skills of intervention. This training program is called the Active Bystandership for Law Enforcement Project. You'll hear people refer to it as ABLE. It was developed in the aftermath of the Rodney King beating in L.A. in 1991, when more than a dozen police officers stood by and watched while King was tasered, clubbed, and kicked by four officers who were later acquitted of any criminal charges. Obviously, given the number of times in recent years there has been this kind of police violence against minorities, the general culture has not changed. That's Irvin Staub. He's a professor of psychology and a founding partner of ABLE. He was the one who first developed this training to help reform police in L.A. back in the 90s. At that point, his research wasn't about policing, but it was about genocide and mass violence. It was informed in part by his family's experiences surviving the Holocaust. In 1989, I published a book 
the roots of evil, the origins of genocide and other group violence that wrote about a number of these situations and how they might be addressed. It wasn't until the Rodney King beating that his work started to get linked with policing. Somebody from a balcony made a film of this. This was before iPhones and sent it to a television station. And it went viral around the world and it created a real distress. And so somebody from uh, the LA Times called me and asked me, why would police do these things? In that LA Times article, Irvin talked about how this behavior wasn't exclusive to cops. You see this kind of dynamic when a group feels under threat. They get this us-versus-them mentality. They form a sense of identity from denigrating outsiders. They use violence to feel more powerful. Staub's work got the attention of a commission in California charged with making changes to the state's police training. They recommended that the training that I created be included in every police course from, you know, rookies to executive development. But they said, we can do this internally. We have the resources. And I was not further involved. And many years later, we looked back and tried to find evidence of what they did with it in L.A. and in California. And we couldn't see any evidence that they did anything with it. It's only more recently that this kind of training started to actually be put into practice at the New Orleans Police Department. Irony had been brought in to help institute and monitor reforms that had been mandated by the Justice Department. In the Department of Justice's investigation in 2011 and 12, they found that uh, the New Orleans Police Department was, um, to say it was dysfunctional is an understatement. Uh, they, they found things wrong in almost every area of policing in New Orleans. And the New Orleans community was looking for something that would empower officers to be the first line of defense against misconduct. And I remember the day because a, a couple of police officers and, a, and two deputy chiefs and a couple of community members, uh, one of whom sues police departments for a living, they all came to me collectively and asked if I would lend a hand creating an intervention program for the New Orleans Police Department. I, I didn't really know what it was, but I was inspired that there was police and community asking for the same thing. Uh, and, and they introduced me to a famous psychologist, Dr. Irvin Staub, who had, who had created a program for Los Angeles, but it was never really implemented. And we all get together and collectively we decided, yeah, if we can teach police officers the skills and tactics of how to intervene in another police officer's conduct to prevent harm, that would be a win-win. Can you talk through, like, what exactly were you hearing from, from people in the community? Like, what were they complaining about in terms of moments where this wasn't happening? What we were seeing in New Orleans, just like we were seeing in police departments all across the country, is... One officer would either do something wrong or just make a simple mistake, and another officer would be in a position to take action but not take action. And we kept seeing that same scenario over and over again. One officer would do something, another officer could stop it but didn't. The more work we did there, the more we would hear and we would see that. And frankly, the work I do with other police departments, we see exactly the same thing. There's frequently a bystander there who, if trained well, could take action to prevent the harm. 
but but why don't they like if they are trained to know what what are good police practices and what are not good police practices they know enough to know like i probably wouldn't do what this officer is doing then why aren't they stepping in I think we have to answer that question in a broader context. I think we have to ask why historically do nurses not step in on surgeons when they're about to make a tragic mistake? Why historically has clergy not stepped in on clergy before they committed misconduct? Why historically have co-pilots not intervened on pilots before they made tragic errors? I could keep going down the list. The truth is it always looks easy afterward on TV, but when people are honest, Intervening in another person's conduct is very hard, especially in a hierarchical organization. Uh, And people have been studying this since going back to the Holocaust. There are a number of, we call them inhibitors. There are a number of very powerful inhibitors that keep even good people from intervening. Now, sometimes the inhibitors are ugly. Sometimes the inhibitors are bias or racism or misogyny. More often than not, the inhibitors are the type of things you'd expect Fear of hierarchy, fear of repercussions, fear of being ostracized. Gatrell Davis, the warden from outside of New Orleans who you heard at the beginning of the show, he took the training last year. He talked about it with our producer, Rena Flores. And he said that one of the hangups that he had to get out of his head was the sense that intervening in the actions of another officer was somehow disloyal. It's not ratting. It's not telling. You know, some people, you know, they have this macho thing about them and they feel like, you know, I don't want to be the one to rat the guy out or I don't want. No, it's not that. What helped for him was being posed these scenarios from real life and having to figure out, okay, what would you have done in this situation? How could intervening have helped prevent someone from getting hurt? How could it prevent an officer from getting hurt or losing their job or you losing your job? How do you make it less about getting them in trouble and more about making your coworkers better? You have definitely have had individuals in that training, and I've definitely witnessed individuals have what I call, and some other people call it as well, the aha moment uh, to where as they think, whoa, there's a situation that brings another situation to mind that I could have done something better. I could have done something differently. I felt like I could have spoke up more. Would you be willing to or comfortable to to share any of those situations where you were like, oh, I could have I could have been more. um, I'll say this. I've never been in a compromising situation where one's uh, life has been on the line or uh, anything to that nature. But, you know, just comments uh, Mm -hmm. or or, or conversations. You don't say anything because there's a higher ranking person than you. Mm -hmm. So you 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 you, uh, reluctant to, you know. Get involved because, you know, you're a peon per se, um, you're on a lower level. And so you, you feel like, you know what, I'm not I'm not going to say nothing. They got the experience. They got the rank. So I'm just not going to even though I feel in my heart what they're saying is wrong or uh, what they're doing is wrong. I'm not going to say anything because um, they outrank me and they got more experience than me. So part of this training is about not just how to recognize those moments or why it's important to speak up in those moments, but how you actually do it, like how you talk to someone with more power than you, what you're supposed to say. Is about the tactics and strategies and practicing those tactics and strategies. So you not only you not only hear an instructor talk about it, but you as the student engage and then you practice these things. You know, you'll you'll have a scenario and the scenario will call for an intervention and then you'll practice doing it yourself. 
Can can you actually describe what one of those scenarios could be? Like, sure. what are the what? Yeah, what are the sure. situations that are posed to these students? Okay, well, here's here's one that just comes to the top of my mind. Um, you're a police officer, and you're out with a colleague, and uh, one of you does a takedown. In other words, you you forcibly take a suspect to the ground, and that's a use of force. And you have to, in most agencies, you have to report that use of force. So in this particular scenario, the 20-year veteran does the takedown while the two-year rookie watches it happen. And then they go back to the station to fill out their use of force reports. And the 20-year veteran doesn't want to write down that he did a takedown. And now the two-year rookie Mm -hmm. has to figure out how to convince the 20-year veteran to fill out his report properly. And I know as we sit here, it sounds so easy to just say, well, just tell them to do it or you're going to go to the supervisor. No, actually, the complete opposite. Okay, I, I feel because... like when I listen to that scenario, I'm like, oh, yeah, I would feel so awkward Ouch. about like, how do I tell this person who clearly knows how to do this job better than me because I think it's important? Absolutely. We have a model we call PACT, P-A-C-T. PACT stands for probe, alert, challenge, take action. PACT is an escalation model. I know we always, you know, do a lot of talking about de-escalation for good reasons. PACT is a way for an officer who perhaps isn't fully confident to escalate an intervention, which makes it easier. Can I can I go back to the rookie officer and the, sure. the older officer example? Based on what you said, can we kind of work through like what what should happen in that scenario based on this training? Sure. You know, do, do you want do you want to do you want to do a quick role play right now? I'll be the older officer and you be the rookie. Yeah. <laughs> OK. You and I just came in. Uh, I did a takedown. Remember, that's when a police officer forcibly takes a suspect to the ground. And it was a perfectly legal and legitimate and appropriate takedown. Now, I've been an officer a long time and I think this paperwork is a pain in the neck. So we get in the station and you finished your report. And you realize that I did not write a use of force report. So go ahead, give it a shot. Um, hey, I uh, just for my understanding, um, you know, I, I wrote the report about what happened in this takedown. Uh, but I am curious if you're planning to do that too, so that our reports kind of jive with each other. What? You're kidding? That was that was perfectly fine. That was a perfectly good takedown. It was by the book. Yeah, no, I'm I'm not questioning whether or not it was you know whether or not it was by the book or legal. I just um I don't want to get in trouble if this is a situation where we're supposed to report it just to give people a heads up and I'm reporting it but then you don't report it um and I uh I I just don't want either of us to get in trouble for that. Paris, you you've been a cop what? 2 years? Uh yeah. <laughs> I've been a cop 20 years, okay? This is how I've been doing it, and I don't need you or anyone else to tell me how to do it differently. It was all fine. Don't worry about it. Yeah, no, I, I'm not I'm not trying to question uh, your, like, expertise. And, uh, you know, obviously I know that you know a ton more about this stuff. But I just, you know, I just went through training, and they were really adamant about uh, making sure that we report these kinds of situations. And I felt like that was made clear to me. And I'm worried about what's going to happen if if I don't follow through on that, if we don't follow through you know, on that. You know, I'm kind of done with this conversation. Don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. All good. Let's get out of here. Come on. 
Okay. I'm yeah. Gonna, See, that's I'm the point where, okay. where I'm like, right. I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Okay. After so that. I'm going to I'm going to stop you right there. Okay. Because and actually, well played. Uh, it's important to say this, though. Okay. That most of the time this doesn't happen. Most of the time, mm. officers fill out the use of force report, and everything's fine. Right. Though, so, so this sort of training is luckily for the exception, not the rule. But you know, it seems to be the exception more often than anyone would like. So, so what you did, if we just think of that packed framework, you started with a simple probing question. Uh, you didn't, you didn't call me a liar. You didn't call me a cheat. You didn't say I'm an idiot. Um, you didn't mm-hmm. turn me off to the conversation. A simple probing question, which young people are great at these days, by the way. Right now, <laughs> now that didn't work. Um, so then, then you know, you kind of upped it a notch. You you then incorporated the concept that we can get in trouble, right? So so now you've moved mm-hmm. really to more of an alert. Right? And had we keep going, you ultimately would have had to say something like, "Look, I just I just can't lose my career over this. Okay, I can't. I work too hard. I got a family. Uh, I'm going to submit my report as it's written, and everyone's going to see the difference." Right. Mm-hmm. So look, mm-hmm. we, do we want to get to these threats? No. But do we have to sometimes? Absolutely. Interestingly, I don't know if you remember, but in the George Floyd video, one of those officers did make it to the P of PACT. Like yeah. he, someone yeah, asked he, a probing question. Someone might even say he made it to the A and issued a kind of weak alert. Can you imagine if those officers had had training and understood that there was a C and a T that follow it? Again, that would have been challenge or take action. And I know, I know we can all sit and we do when we watch and say, you shouldn't have to teach this. But, but I've, you know, I've had enough saying you shouldn't have to teach it because you do have to teach this. Because this is a relatively new program, it's hard to know how effective this training has been so far. And Jonathan points out that it's hard to measure success because when an intervention training works best, nothing bad happens that then becomes public. What we do know is that there's more interest in intervention training since George Floyd's death. And not just from civilians demanding police reform, but also from cops who don't want to lose their job. 213 law enforcement agencies are now participating in ABLE. These agencies who opt into ABLE, they have to apply to get in. They have to get community support. They have to get mayoral support. They have to get police chief support. So they're already building a culture where interventions are not just required, but they're accepted and they're appreciated. They actually change what loyalty means. What do you mean by that? So loyalty in many professions, I think probably almost every profession, has meant over the years, do whatever you need to do to protect each other, even where it means, you know, hiding things from others. And police has certainly been accused of that. And and I've seen that myself over the years. But but that's not real loyalty. Like real loyalty is doing something that's going to protect the citizens and your colleagues and the department and the city. We're always criticizing in the community the no-snitch culture. That, again, is Sheriff Clayton in Michigan, who you heard at the beginning. But the power of ABLE is it redefines all of that. It redefines the thin blue line, and it redefines loyalty as meaning. Um, I'm going to intervene 
when I see you doing something wrong, potentially damaging not just to yourself, but to others. And my loyalty to you is I'm going to intervene before you do something that costs you your career and costs you your life. Even if that means that I have to stop an action that may cause you to be held accountable now, but it'll be in a way where it's not tragedy later. I think that's so powerful. That's it for today's episode of Post Reports. Thanks for listening. The show was produced by me and Rena Flores and edited by Ariel Plotnik. It was mixed by Sean Carter. And thank you to Amanda Erickson. On tomorrow's show, we have the story of a mother and daughter who were separated at the U.S. border during former President Trump's zero-tolerance policy. They said to me that I have to leave my mom, but... That moment, I was crying because I don't want to leave my mom. And I love her, and she was crying too because she didn't want to leave me. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.